Scott Horton. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Jacob. It's now 5,700, by the way. Oh, ooh, yeah, no pressure at all. 19 years. <laughs> wow, that's what actually got you into it. Oh, I hate the government a lot. <laughs> I hate cops right. and I hate wars. And I hate bankers and I hate Republicans and Democrats, not the voters and the, the real human beings, but I mean, the parties in power. Um, when I was a kid, Ronald Reagan was a dope pusher um, and and also the leader of the crackdown against the people abusing his supply. Um, and then Bill Clinton came in and it was apparent to me I, I was just lucky, man, time and place. I got cheat sheets just handed to me. And I understood at the beginning of the Clinton years that this guy works for Bush. When, when Reagan and Bush were running Iran-Contra, part of the operation was bringing cocaine into Bill Clinton's Arkansas. And he was, you know, I don't know if he was made, but he was in the mob with them, you know? Um, and, you know, the Bushes being, of course, a very powerful family going back into American history and so forth. It's not like Bill Clinton was the boss. He was, you know, part of their same network. You can call a political party whatever you want, but this is different, you know? So this is just the beginning of my political education back then. Oh, and also Iraq War One, which I was all for dropping the bombs because I thought explosions were cool, but I didn't really give a damn about Kuwait or any of that. And I very quickly got, uh, as they say now, red-pilled on it by first, the most beautiful girl at my high school who was like, are you kidding me? What are you, stupid? And just had, <laughs> she was great. Wonder whatever happened to her. I heard some, I heard she died or something. Anyway, and then George Carlin. Also, to paraphrase, in Jammin' in, uh, Jammin in New York, 1992. What are you, an idiot? You fell for this, you know? And it's, yeah. it was very, very powerful there. Um, and then, but also, you know, in, in fact, I'll give Carlin more credit. That same, that same bit, Jammin' in New York, the last bit is all about liberals and their Volvos and their Earth Day and their recycling plastic bags and all of their crap and um, and how contemptible and dishonest they all were too. So that was when I was like 15, 16 or something. So that was really an inoculation for me that prevented me from ever being a liberal or a conservative in any way, you know? Um, and so I was just kind of inoculated against all of that very early on. And then, of course, Clinton was a monster. Waco, the Oklahoma bombing, which I don't know if the government did it, although it kind of looks like they did it, but they sure as hell covered it up and let all the bad guys get away with it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, really, I mean, hell, the Gulf War illness and the cover-up around that, the endless no-fly zone bombings of the 1990s, uh, you know, in the name of, uh, you know, securing whatever, protecting Saudi Arabia and the Iraqi Shiites and whatever. And that was what was more than any other thing provoked the Al-Qaeda war against the United States was bombing Iraq from bases in Saudi Arabia and enforcing that blockade throughout the Bill Clinton years. I was against that the whole time. And, um, and you know, Ron Paul and Harry Brown. So Harry Brown first in 96 you know, really great, heroic Ron Paul level libertarian in terms of what a classy and great guy he was and how principled and hardcore he was. And 
how knowledgeable he was about everything under the sun. Just like Ron Paul, you know, he is a real hero. I got a bust of him on my shelf over here next to Ron, for real. Um, and then Ron, you know, ran that same year for Congress, went back to Congress, you know, re-inaugurated uh, back in 97. And so he was a big hit on my C-SPAN from then, you know. So, um, you know, that's a huge part of, you know, setting me up for the terror war. And then, you know, I was predicting the terror war for years. Like a lot of people, I mean, it was pretty obvious Al-Qaeda had been attacking us forever. And I did believe at the time, although I don't now, but I did believe at the time that the whole thing was just a CIA front, a whole one big false flag operation itself and whatever before September 11th. Um, and so I just knew that the war on terrorism was coming and all saw all the dishonesty baked into it and the rest of it. And then Ron Paul, more than any other, was, um, you know, really uh, led on that. Oh, what a good libertarian ought to think about the terror war. And then also that's when I found antiwar.com and lewrockwell.com. And, uh, and then of course, lewrockwell.com led me to Mises and the rest of the harder edge of the libertarian movement. You know, I had, I, I actually spent the nineties palling around with militia guys. Cause at least they cared about the branch Davidians, you know? I was, I'm more of an issues guy. So I'm a libertarian myself. I, I'm not right wing on cultural stuff, but I would way rather hang around with right wingers and even like, you know, conspiracy nuts and whoever, which I was more of a conspiracy nut myself at the time, but I would way rather hang out with right wingers who give a damn about what's happening in the world compared to libertarians who just want to talk about some stupid navel gazing thing. So I didn't really know about the real you know, badass part of the libertarian movement, really, the antiwar.com, yeah. rockwell.com, Mises.org type faction yeah, of the libertarian actually... movement until the terror war started. And then that was where I found my home was really antiwar.com more than anything else. Yeah. I mean, I'm an Austrian on gold. I read Jekyll Island way back then. I could have mentioned that, that in the 90s, palling around with the Birchers and reading a lot of their stuff. But uh, really, it was Romando was who I identified the most with once the terror war began, that this is you know, the perspective that best represents mine. So that's actually one thing uh, I, I had just thought of um, wanting to talk to you about because I've, I've actually learned quite a bit about, about Waco. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions on both sides. Um, and I've, I've seen you kind of, uh, uh, how do I put it nicely, uh, kind of straighten out some of those misconceptions with some people. Um, so I guess as simply as you can, do you want to give a rundown of what the most uh, or the, the biggest misconceptions of Waco is? Sure. I mean, the both sides thing is barely right. That, I mean, the, the people who take the Davidian side, you may be referring to a tweet the other day where a guy asked about footage where it looks like the Bradley tank is shooting fire into the house. And that's actually, unfortunately, but kind of fortunately, it's the basis of a absolutely masterful bit by bill hicks from 1993 about have you seen the footage of the bradley shooting fire and then the thing is like he's wrong on that fact but the bit is just priceless man it's some of the absolute best bill hicks anything ever my favorite stuff off a of rant minor um but the thing is he's still right anyway okay because a preponderance of the evidence would lead one to believe that it was the government that set the fires on the last day, that all three origins of the fires, they found pyrotechnic um, 
you know, CS rounds. And, um, and then they were all mislabeled as silencers in the evidence lockers. Um, and uh, so though it is not 100% certain, here's another very strong piece of circumstantial evidence to say that the government were the ones who set the fire. They also machine gunned the people from the back of the house and they filmed it from their own plane flying infrared overhead on the, the last day there, the 51st day, April 19th, as they sat in the back and they also, and it was, must've been the Delta force. I don't know. It's possible it was the FBI HRT, but it was more likely the Delta force that broke into the place and put a shape charge on the roof of what they called the bunker, which was a pantry. It was a storm shelter, essentially. The one concrete room, you know, made of cinder blocks with a concrete ceiling um, in the whole wooden clapboard house, you know. And they went up there and put a demolition charge or a, you know, a shape charge in the center of that ceiling. You can see in the pictures the, the hole through it. And you got Stephen Barry, you know, in, in Waco New Revelation, you got Stephen Barry, the former special operations officer, explaining, yeah, that's what that is. That's where they put a bomb there. And here's how that works. That's a tactic that we use, you know, neutralize the people in the room without putting your own guys at risk. You put a bomb on the ceiling and blast their ass. Well, it was just women and children in there who were crushed and exploded to death in there. As Barry put it, it would have been much like being thrown into a grain thresher is what happened to them. And it was the Army Combat Applications Group, Team B, the Delta Force, that did that. And, you know, in, in concert with the FBI hostage rescue team. And so, I mean, hell, I skipped the whole story. But, you know, as far as the misconception that like, oh, well, maybe the Bradleys shot fire into the building. You know, what happened was there was a lady named Linda Thompson who was kind of a militia nut. You know, I don't know. She's, I'm sure, a good person or whatever. But I don't know if she did it deliberately or if she made a mistake. I think it was deliberate. That there's footage where it's cloth hanging off the barrel of the tank and she kind of colored it orange or took maybe a, a, a short segment of film where it looks orange in the sunlight or whatever it was and said aha see it's shooting fire but just took the clip out of context and if you play the whole clip you could tell no it's like a curtain that got stuck because what was this bradley tank doing it was ramming into this building and shooting poison gas banned by the Geneva Conventions, CS gas into this house. And so they, it got like some curtains, probably it was, or like a bed sheet or something, you know, just hung up on the barrel is all it was. And in fact, so here's what happened. A guy named Mike McNulty said, come on, that's BS, dude. That's clearly cloth, not fire. That's not what I know enough about video and fire to know that's not what that is. So he went to debunk her movie. And you know what? He ended up proving that, yeah, she was wrong about that, but holy crap, look at all this stuff. And he's the guy that turned around then and made Waco the rules of engagement. And Waco, a new revelation, and later Waco, uh, no, it's not called Waco, it's called the FLIR Project, uh, which is the, the uncovering up of the cover-up there uh regarding the infrared footage there and so mcnulty you know he was the source of so much of this and for any of you for you for any of your uh your viewers who want to know about waco just go straight to youtube and watch um waco the rules of engagement and i'll i'll tell you that the producer dan gifford complains that this is like the director's cut that includes a lot of stuff that he didn't want in there because he didn't think it was good enough 
like some of the stuff about Vince Foster and some of the other shit that got thrown in there. But um, uh, if you could find a little bit shorter version, that would be the one that McNulty and Gifford agreed on, I guess. Um, but anyway, it's still absolutely fantastic. And then the follow-up is called Waco, A New Revelation, which is narrated by Frederick Whitehurst, the FBI crime lab whistleblower uh, hero. Um, and, um, and it's, you know, so the long and the short of it is that this is essentially a break-off group of the Seventh-day Adventists. They lived on the outskirts of Waco, in the northwest corner of, of Waco, essentially, uh, out there on this little plot of land. And the group had been founded back in the 30s, and uh, Koresh had essentially inherited it. And, you know, he didn't say he was Jesus, but he did, like, find himself in the Bible. Oh, look at me. I'm the Lamb of God in the book of Revelations who's here to interpret the book of Revelations for you. So this is, you know, it's the 1990s. There's a lot of this millennial stuff going on. Um, and so, you know, there were a lot of people there trying to get, you know, the what they saw as this, you know, um, especially instructive interpretation of the seven seals, you know, something like that. So that's what they were all there for, studying the end times under this guy. And, you know, he was a kook. But the thing is, they portrayed him like he was Charles Manson, the cult leader. But that's just not true. I mean, they portrayed the whole thing like it was a criminal enterprise, which is just not true. And you see the footage of the Branch Davidians. In fact, during the siege, they the FBI sent them a video camera and videotape in for them to film themselves so that they could show us on 60 Minutes what a bunch of freaks they were. But they weren't freaks at all. They were just decent, good, old country folk from out on the prairie that any Texan would have recognized as, hey, wait a minute, man. This isn't Charles Manson and his freaks. This is what is going on here, right? So they buried that footage. They never showed it. You can see it in Waco, the rules of engagement. And you go, oh, I get it. What was going on here was the ATF did a big publicity stunt where they were going to pick on some rednecks in order to suck up to the Democrats, okay? You know how PC it is now with all this woke stuff? Well, that's how it was in 1993. At the very dawn of the Bill Clinton era, it was all Captain Planet and the United Nations mm -hmm. and recycling and everybody's gay and all of this stuff was just, it was the same kind of thing. It was like woke 1.0, like PC at that time, you know, or 1.5, yeah. whatever it was. Um, so the ATF, who are a bunch of racists, I mean, one of the reasons they targeted Koresh was because they accused him of miscegenating, meaning there were black women in there and he was accused of sleeping with them. And the ATF were the white supremacists, not him. He looked like one with his, you know, to a liberal from New York. He looked like one with his mullet head and his Trans Am. But that didn't mean he was actually, you know, some kind of racist. That just meant that he was from the country. You know, is all it meant. Um, uh, it was the ATF. They told Dan Gifford themselves that that was why they targeted him. But it was a publicity stunt because they were being sued for sexual harassment and for racism inside the ATF. Um, picking on their own fellow employees, and they had been caught selling N-word hunting licenses at this Nazi jubilee thing somewhere in the South. I forget exactly. Um, and so they were all in trouble. And Al Gore, the vice president, had this policy called reinventing government, where they were going to cut waste, fraud, and abuse, and trim the fat, and all this kind of crap, right, which is, usually just means nothing. But 
one of the proposals was maybe we'll take the ATF away from the Treasury Department and give them to the Justice Department. The ATF was pissed about that. They didn't want that because they were already the little brother to the FBI. Now they're going to be the much littler brother to the FBI <laughs> inside justice. So they're terrified of this. They don't want this. But they got all this bad public relations because Ruby Ridge was their fault. Now, that was mm -hmm. under H.W. Bush still. People blame Clinton for that because might as well. But it was actually H.W. Bush's government that did that. Uh, it gets conflated together. And even though it was the marshals that killed Weaver's son and dog, and even though it was the FBI who blew his wife's head off, it was the ATF who entrapped Weaver in the first place and set the whole thing up. So inside the fraternity of federal police agencies, they took the rap and everybody was mad at them, right? So they did Waco to try to make up for that and try to make up for the lawsuits against them for selling N-word hunting licenses and all of these things by, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go pick on some rednecks. And we heard about this uh, church out there where the guy drives the Trans Am and has this mullet head and some rifles. And so we're going to go and get him. And we're going to, in order to suck up to the Democrats, they had a, they literally had a, an, um, an appropriations hearing coming up before the Congress, the Democratic Congress there in this new uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton era, um, you know, in a couple of weeks, right at the, right at the beginning. So it was literally called Operation Showtime. And they had the, they called the news and had the news out there to film the whole thing happen in the first place. So the whole element of surprise was completely gone. And then they show up and the first thing they do is shoot the dogs who are in a pen anyway, like in a pen, meaning it has a ceiling of chicken wire too, right? Like a roof of, you know what I mean? Like they cannot get out. Then they're they're like Malamutes. They're huskies, right? Like these are not dangerous dogs. They're they're is you know what I mean? It's not like they're pit bulls, you know, uh, uh, pulling on chains, about to pull their stake out of the ground or something. These are harmless dogs. The ATF pulls up. The first thing they do is shoot the dogs. Koresh opens the door and says, "Wait, wait, wait! There's women and children in here." And one of them shoots, and the bullet goes under his arm and kills his father-in-law. Hits him in the chest and kills him. And Koresh closes the door, the missing door now because the ATF then just completely opened fire and, and just completely the whole front of the building. And this is why I believe that they were determined to, to uh, scotch negotiations to perpetuate the siege until they could have a chance to burn the building down because the whole building itself was defense exhibit A. It was just absolutely riddled with bullet holes where there was no chance in the world that the ATF had a clear line of sight of their target shooting into a house that they know is full of women and children. And it was all innocent people that died. You know, this guy Winston Blake was sitting on his bed eating breakfast and a Huey helicopter flew by and the guy shot him with an M16 like they're fighting in the Vietnam War. You know, uh, he wasn't a combatant. He's just some guy on a Sunday morning. I think it was a Sunday morning when they raided the damn thing. Um, and, uh, you know, they killed six innocent people and four of the ATF agents were killed. But then once they finally got a ceasefire, the Davidians ceased fire. They fired only in self-defense and they just lied and said it was an ambush. Somehow Koresh lured them into coming. Well, look, they pulled up in trailers just covered in tarps. If the, if the Davidians had ambushed them, they would have killed them all or many of them in the trailers before they even got out of their trucks. It would have been an absolute massacre because they were heavily armed. You know why? Because it was a gun business. They weren't criminals. 
you know, and I don't know the statistic now, but I know at the time, one of the reporters from the San Antonio Express News, Dick Rivas, said, listen, there are 50,000 gun dealers in Texas. 50,000 gun dealers. It's probably 200,000 now. Who knows? It doesn't make you a criminal that you buy and sell guns in the state of Texas, okay? That's all they were was gun dealers. And here's the proof of their absolute innocence on all of this crap about how they're stockpiling machine guns for Armageddon and all this crap, okay? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Paul Fatta left the Branch Davidians property that morning driving a dually pickup truck with a camper shell, towing a U-Haul trailer, both full of rifles. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rifles. And why? Getting away, sneaking away with the evidence to go and hide it in the lake somewhere in a boating accident? No, he was driving down here to Austin to sell it at the gun show. At the Saxit Gun Show, takes place right there at Sheridan and 290. For skateboarders, that's the best banks, the famous best banks. Uh, that building right there adjacent is where they had the gun show. And Paul Fatta came down here. He was just selling guns. He was the one who owned the gun business. And that was 90-something percent of all the rifles the Davidians had. It was an inventory for their gun business. And they just lied. I mean, you're just too young to know. But, man, I'm telling you, the worst war propaganda you ever heard whether if you remember how it was against Saddam when you were a kid or how it was against Bashar al-Assad or, uh, you know, as it is right now uh, against um, Vladimir Putin and the war, which he did start a horrible war, but still. Um, you see the consensus of the war propaganda, the way they do the yellow ribbons or the, the yellow and blue flags or the whatever it is, the, the full-on propaganda campaign. Like I compare it almost to Desert Storm, right? Operation Yellow Ribbon. We're gonna go save the Kuwaitis and all this stuff. And, and they did that against this tiny little plot of land full of Texans. They turned this little piece of property into a foreign nation. And they called, they called it the compound. And that little concrete pantry, the storm shelter, um, the one concrete room, they called that the bunker. And he said, David Koresh's, uh, his friend, Steve, that's his lieutenant, Steve Schneider, the lieutenant. And they just pretended that this was Saddam Hussein and the Baathist fascist tyranny. And they pretended this was a foreign nation. And then they invaded it and conquered it and destroyed it and killed them all. It's the most unbelievable goddamn thing. I mean, I'm telling you. Um, and then, you know, it's really... You know, if you, if you fast forward 10 years, they did the exact same thing to Saddam Hussein that they did to David Koresh. They said, look, he's crazy, crazy. So we can't deal with him. No point in negotiating. Our Secretary of State is a four-star general, Colin Powell. Nope, not tough enough to deal with Saddam Hussein. He's just too bad of a psycho for even a four-star general of a secretary of state to go and talk to. Can't deal with him. Oh, and he's bad to his own people. He abuses the kids and he marries all of his lieutenants' wives. And, um, and he's, you know, he's, a, he's beating the babies. That's what Janet Reno said. He's beating the babies. <laughs> and he's got illegal weapons. And we got to go in there and get them. And, and they just pulled the exact same shit with Saddam. You know, uh, you know, he's bad to his own people was certainly true. 
truer in his case than in Koresh's case, for sure. Uh, but of course, you know, he worked for America for many years because of what a ruthless murderer he was. And that might have been part of the story. Um, you know, it'd be akin to if David Koresh had been an FBI agent all along before they turned on him or something like that. Not that I'm saying he was, but that would be in the analogy There's here. Some questions there anyways. No, 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 no. Koresh never worked. don't think so? No, 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 not, 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 um, but I'm saying Saddam um, in the analogy, in the analogy. Yes. Saddam very much was America's man, but, but anyway, and then also it was like all the, all the lies were based on defectors, right? Justin Romando had this article, why Waco matters that we reran at the Institute the other day. And he talked, he talks about even more parallels than I had thought of how it was all these defectors that had come out and said all of this stuff. And then how also an important point is that he didn't have illegal weapons, that that was a lie, and that they ended up having to admit that, well, look, if he had taken his semi-automatic rifle and done 10 things to it, it would have turned it into a fully automatic one. Well, you could say that about any <laughs> AR-15 <laughs> owner in America or any SKS owner in America, right? Uh, any no, rifle my, owner in America of any description. That, oh, well, my, he's got to upper this and lower that. that though, my, my question is, why didn't they just snag him off the property? While he was out because running they wanted to show the Democrats that they were the loyal servants of liberals in power, that we got this reputation as right wing rednecks. So mm. we're going to, you know, like they say about when when liberals uh, hippie punch, when they, they condemn leftists to the left of them. Right. This is yeah. the ATF condemning right wingers to the right of them. Hippie punching to right wingers to the right of them in order to impress the Democrats. Now, what wow. can you say? And then, and, and look, you know, the thing is about the propaganda campaign is that it worked. I mean, the American people wanted the Branch Davidians dead. The American people believed and wanted to believe that this guy claims to be Jesus. And so we have no choice but to crucify him. He's blocking our game shows and soap operas. Somebody has got to go in there and end it. And that does mean, yes, the women and the children too, if they're in the way, they've got to go. This cannot go on. You know, I was sacking groceries at the time, 15 years old at Albertson's grocery store. And all the women in Northwest Austin wanted them Branch Davidians burnt sooner, not later. How can this go on for six weeks? I say, go in there and end it. They all agreed. And it's the same thing that they do to these foreign nations. Look, everybody's a damn sinner. You know what I mean? You want to point your finger at Muammar Gaddafi or Bashar al-Assad or Saddam Hussein or the Ayatollah Khamenei or Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin or whatever, whoever you want to demonize, David Koresh, you can demonize them. People got flaws, man, and all of these dictators especially have some real flaws. David Koresh, as the leader of this religious community, was probably pretty irresponsible in some ways. And the way for especially the way he treated his relationship with his men and their wives and justifying it all in the Bible and stuff. To me... I don't know. I do know that it's very possible for people to get caught up in believing their own BS. 
it's hard for me to believe that anybody could act that way and not be cynical about it and 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 be you know abusive about that um i think the accusations about koresh and the children are totally overblown although now that all this time has passed i guess you know all those kids are grown up now and it'd be interesting to see what any and all of them have to say i know that one of them um has stood by some of the stuff but uh i don't know to what degree but i know that um as as uh, justin pointed out in his article in 1992 the uh, local mclellan county cps had investigated the davidians and their treatment of the children and cleared them on all charges it's not like the atf or the federal government have any jurisdiction over that whatsoever anyway cat no i'm sorry the cat's about to knock everything over it's all good kind of a cat's got a cat but i mean it we got like two they cats have any and two dogs man <laughs> that sounds sounds great honestly yeah, it is. Um, you know, it kind of the cock or the, the the pot calling the kettle black. You know, like yeah. uh, the the government telling the Ranch Davidians that uh, they're abusing children. It's like, okay, well, you have plenty of uh, CPS safe houses, and they're all terrible. So, yeah. and then look at what happened to them, dude. You know, they sent tanks to attack this house, fill it with poison gas machine gun them and bomb them and burn them and those little kids yeah. got horrible deaths in there man you know there's just you know the lucky ones were suffocated you know hiding under wet blankets and towels from the gas before they were crushed by falling concrete or uh, burned to death exploded to death uh but you know those are my neighbors man it's 100 miles up the road from me and i'm never going to get over it and neither are a hell of a lot of other people too and you know i mentioned the oklahoma bombing there mm -hmm. um at the very least a bunch of undercover fbi informants and state witnesses got away with helping mcveigh do that but at the same time and i do gotta i even after all this time as I mentioned, I was a bit more of a conspiracy nut in the 90s. And a lot of that stuff wasn't right. And yeah. so now I'm much more of a minimalist on stuff like this. Um, but I do think that there is an honest chance that the Oklahoma bombing was deliberately set up. And there's real reasons to believe. Not just that it was supposed to be a sting in order to catch the bad guys in the act, but that maybe they actually really did want the damn thing to happen. And... Um, and it certainly would make sense. And I'll tell you this, just like with September 11th, they might as well have done it themselves. If you look at the degree to which they exploited it and the degree to which they just absolutely cynically embraced the fear and pushed it as hard as they could for their own benefit. You know, Clinton himself bragged that the Oklahoma bombing saved my presidency as the people all rallied around the government, me, uh, in the face of our, you know, right-wing enemy. And the way he portrayed it was essentially the entire anti-Clinton right, which included the entire right, was all as anti-government as the most anti-government extremist, which is just <laughs> not true, right? Like most conservatives are extremely statist. Um, yeah. And there are some on the radical right, and it was, and the radical right at that time was, pardon me, was bigger than it had been in a very long time. 
However, you know, and I know this from palling around with a lot of these guys at the time, um, that the militia guys, essentially, their idea was if the feds ever try to do a Waco type thing again, we won't let them. And there are more of us than them. And we got rifles too. And so don't you even think about it. Um, the TV's conception of them and portrayal of them was that they're all a bunch of Nazis and they're all a bunch of white supremacists. And the only reason anyone would be in a militia would be so they can kill black people or something like that. When it had nothing to do with it. It was a reaction to Waco. Everybody knew. Jesus, what are you doing? The cat turned the printer on. I don't know what it's going to print, but we'll see. Um, <laughs> the uh, So here's what happened, man. You had actual Nazis do the Oklahoma bombing. You had actual Nazis do the Oklahoma bombing. Very, very few. It's a very, very marginal part of American political society. And then he had the Democrats in power blame all of the right for it and call them all Nazis. Call, well, especially all the militias are all Nazis was the claim. Yeah. All right. The only thing they Every see. white man with a gun did the Oklahoma bombing in the whole country, essentially. <laughs> Every, the entire right wing did it. And, and they got away with that. And they exploited it to such a degree. Um, and it really, really did serve to neutralize the influence of the militia movement, which was becoming much more relevant at that time, much more powerful at that time. You had all across the country. And, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Bill Curtis, the old investigative reporter. Uh, mm -hmm. He had a show called uh, Investigative Reports on A&E. And he went and did a big special on all these different, you know, because he had the resources to do it. He did a big special on all the different militias across the country. He went and met with them, you know, him and his producers went and met with them and filmed them and interviewed them. And they were just... Oh, and this is what I was going to say earlier. I'm sorry I went on a tangent. Oh, I hung good. around with these guys too. The Bill Curtis investigative report reflects my same experience. These guys did not talk about blacks and Jews. They just didn't. And what they hated was the federal police. What they hated in terms of like New World Order conspiracy stuff, it's the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds. But I don't even think they knew the Rothschilds were Jewish. That was certainly not the point. I mean, I'm telling you, I fucking knew these guys. They did not go, oh, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. They just weren't like that. That wasn't what it was about to them. The New World Order, I mean, the Rockefellers are Presbyterians mostly, or they were, you know, I don't know. They, people change their sex, but <laughs> I mean, they're, um, but the, you know, the New World Order, the one world government and all that. Um, and, you know, these guys didn't know anything about Israel. They called Ariel Sh uh, Sharon, they called them Ariel Sharon because they didn't know the first thing about it. They didn't know the first thing about it. Um, they didn't know about the Rothschilds' involvement in the foundation of Israel, even. Like, they didn't know anything about that kind of thing. So, like, if you read, you know, the Spotlight, which was the Liberty Lobby, like, those are some pretty right-wing guys, you could find that stuff in there. But, like, the John Birchers, and, and, I mean, they weren't really militia guys, but they're somewhat the radical right. Like, they're not racist. You never read about blacks and Jews in the New American, ever, ever. It's just not like that. Um... And, and that was how it was at that time. Like, this was just a relentless smear campaign that every militia guy is a Nazi and every militia guy did the Oklahoma bombing. Meanwhile, the actual Nazis that did the Oklahoma bombing all got away with it. You know, actually, they murdered Richard Guthrie in his cell and called it a suicide. I guess that doesn't count as getting away with it. But 
Otherwise, they got away with it. So, I mean, that that does perfectly lead into 9-11, though. Because it, it, if you follow the timeline after Oklahoma City, there's, there's not much. I mean, at least here, domestically. Um, yeah. And I know the, the, the media was really pushing that hard, was domestic terrorism, domestic extremism. Um, you know, I, I was born in 92, so I, I remember the tail end. Um, some very vivid things, but not like I lived through it, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, let me say one funny thing about that. They put out this movie called Arlington Road. You may have seen it. it had Jeff Bridges and mm-hmm. Tim Robbins. And I think Jeff Bridges and Tim Robbins is the terrorist. He's the anti-government right wing Timothy McVeigh terrorist. And he's and and Jeff Bridges is the professor, the liberal professor who's on his case and is going to stop him. But then he frames the professor for being the terrorist and the double cross and the thing. But anyway, I'm I don't remember now, but I remember remembering then knowing then when I watched the movie. The most radical anti-government thing that Tim Robbins says in the whole movie is the government owes us the truth. That's wow. the most dangerous anti-government right-wing extremist thing that he says in the whole movie. And that shows that And if somebody's anti-government, the lesson of Arlington Road is somebody doesn't like the government, they're going to bomb you. Whether you're a government employee or not, that's the kind of psycho who doesn't like government. It's the same kind of psycho who says that the government owes us the truth. It's the same kind of psycho who would murder you and your mama. You know, yeah, "Yeah, okay, very convincing, guys. And and frankly, like, just as they they missed the World Trade Center bombing in the first, or didn't really miss it, but they failed to uh, properly intervene to prevent the World Trade Center bombing in the first place. A big part of that was because they were worried about John Gotti and the mob. They were fighting the last war and they didn't want to learn a bunch of Arab names and all of this crap. So when their agents are bringing the bosses the story, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't want to know. And then it's sort of the same thing here. I think um, another, uh, another more obvious case recently would be the Boston bombing, where not just the FBI, but the Boston FBI was right in the middle of entrapping some idiot at the time that the actual terrorist plot was unfolding right under their nose. You know, and I think a big focus on, oh, right-wing extremists, right-wing extremists. Again, this is PR. They're trying to shut the thing down after Waco by building up this whole thing. But actual Nazis in America are not that prevalent. Or, I mean, wherever they exist they don't have power and they don't go around murdering people and even burning crosses in people's yards anymore or anything right like they're so marginal yeah. um right wingers i mean virtually all 90 percent, 95 98 percent of right wingers aren't avowed racists you know what i mean like you gotta go all the way to the right to find avowed racists um and especially then like organized and motivated anti-minority yeah. behaving racist it's just you know people got jobs people got things to do you know what i mean this is the kind of behavior that people engage in in their very early 20s and then they stop um there's just not you know what i mean every one of these militia guys they met on saturday because they didn't even have time on sunday much less monday through friday to do this to even participate in this stuff you know what i mean they built the whole thing up 
as an excuse. And then I think, you know, I bet you that had a lot to do with their blind eye toward Al-Qaeda terrorism in the country, too. I mean, I know that. Um, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, it's Ken something. Ken. Um, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I had this right on the tip of my tongue there. Ken Williams. Ken Williams was the FBI agent in Arizona who got tips about suspicious Arabs in flight schools and sent an urgent memo to the, to, and this was included some of the hijackers. We know later some of these guys were the hijackers. Um, and he sent memos to the boss saying, man, we got to do something about this. There's some real suspicious Arabs learning how to fly planes here. And, all this. and they told him, yeah, that's great. But anyway, we got this really big pot bust <laughs> that we want you to take care of first. Yeah. And he's like, all right, <laughs> you know, what's he going to do? It's their job. He just works for them. He's their agent. So they tell him that marijuana busts are our priority here. And that's our priority. And I mean, this is your security uh. force, dude. You know, they're not here for your security. They're here for their security, their job security. In fact, Frederick Whitehurst, who I mentioned to you before, who narrated Waco, A New Revelation, was the heroic FBI crime lab whistleblower. And he told me, I don't know if this was in an interview or in one of the conversations we had off the air, but he told me that, you know, job one of the FBI is protecting the FBI. It's not protecting the country. It's mm -hmm. just not, you know, um, just like our air defense. We're like, where's our air defense on September 11th? Well, our air defense is patrolling the DMZ in Korea and bombing the no-fly zone over Iraq, provoking the very attack that we're talking about. In fact, check this out. My buddy John found he was listening to the audio of the Howard Stern show from the morning of September 11th, where Howard Stern is saying, drop H-bombs on all Muslims and all this kind of stuff. And uh, But anyway, <laughs> he's listening to the feed from an L.A. station. And the L.A. station has a news report that America has lost a drone in the no-fly zone over Iraq this morning. And they were saying it was shot down by the uh, Iraqis, which I think is probably a lie. I think they said it was shot down. But certainly it crashed. They lost, they lost it where? In the no-fly zone, flying out of bases mm -hmm. on the Holy Arabian Peninsula in order to enforce the blockade and those predators were unarmed at that time, but still it's, our planes were bombing people, you know, from those same bases, yeah. that same airspace. Then an hour later, the, the kamikazes hit the towers and everybody says, how could anybody do this to us? You know, why would anybody be mad at us? Yeah. Like in the Dave Smith they bit. They just hate our freedom. Yeah, it, Dave Smith had a bit um, in his Libertas thing where he goes, if you just asked Americans in the 1990s, well, what do you think that the Arabs think of us? They would say that we're cool. You know, like, I don't know. He goes, no, nah, man, I mean, the thing is, there's a lot of people are really mad because we've been over there bombing them this whole time. That was why it wasn't they hate our free and they hate us for we've been bombing them this whole time. And then he goes, and then Americans would say, what? I mean, that doesn't sound like us. <laughs> you know, that actually, once Ron Paul pointed it out in 2007, in that big debate with Giuliani, remember, yeah. it's not just that Ron Paul got into a fight with Giuliani and won a fight against a bully. 
What, what was he doing? He was force feeding you and your dad the bitterest, bitter pill of all. That they don't hate us because of how awesome we are at all. They don't hate us because of our freedom at all. They hate us because of Bill Clinton's horrible, violent, destructive foreign policy that he inherited from H.W. Bush, but that he continued to prosecute for eight years straight. And that they said so over and over and over again for years as they were attacking our targets overseas. And in fact, beginning with the World Trade Center bombing here, Ramsey Youssef wrote a letter to all the New York newspapers explaining exactly why he did it. It was America's support for the Israelis' oppression of the Palestinians and America's bombing of the poor Iraqis. Even after the war is over, we keep bombing them and bombing them from these bases in Saudi Arabia. And they said the same thing all throughout the 1990s and including in bin Laden's declarations of war from 96 and 98, that that was what it was all about. So there my buddy John found a story where we lost a drone over the no-fly zone flying on the morning of September 11th. You know, and then, you know, that Friday, Bush told Congress they hate us because we love our mamas a lot. And people wanted to believe that. Oh, I, I remember what it was like right after that. Is it was it was interesting. It was kind of like what I said at the start of this: it was red, white, or blue, or fuck you. Like it, people just were not having it. Um, uh, who was it? Brown that released that article on antiwar.com uh, the day after. Yeah, Harry uh, Brown. Which, yep. Yeah, that which is a beautiful article. Uh, that. that one of the best things I think I've ever read. Um, it's really interesting to me the pattern that just keeps going and going and going. It's the same yeah. thing that just happened right now. We just got done 20 years. I mean, I guess we never really left the Middle East, but um, a terrible, uh, you know, exit out of the party, I guess. And and then just a couple of months later, everyone's ready to just start World War Three in Ukraine. Couldn't even probably point it out on a map. Right. Um, I mean, I think let's start with that, right? If you would ask the average American about Ukraine just a few months ago, I bet you if, you know, starting weeding out the people who never heard of it before, anybody who thought that they knew anything about it at all, I bet you the super majority of them would have told you that it's a region of Russia, the Ukraine. Isn't that a region in Russia? you know, like the Midwest yeah. here, you know, something like that. Um, that's what people would have told you. And no, they couldn't find it on a map in a million years unless they really sussed it out. They're like, oh, wait, let's see if I can find the Crimean Peninsula here. And like, you know what I mean? But yeah. they don't already know where it is. And I mean, I don't want to dismiss what you say about World War Three because that is a risk. Um, but I, that's not the plan. The plan is that yeah. we're not going to fight in Ukraine, but that the Ukrainians sure as hell are, and that we're going to continue to dump weapons in there. Now, that does make us a belligerent, and that does yeah. mean that, you know, this is not Vietnam way the hell out in the middle of nowhere. We are right on Russia's border fighting this proxy war. And could this thing spiral out of control to the use of H-bombs in the next week? Yeah, it really could escalate very quickly. Um you know, people talk about a lot of things can change and happen very quickly in politics. How about in a war, in a proxy war between two powerful armies right on Russia's border? How about that? Where a lot of things can change yeah. very quickly, you know. Um, 
but that's not the plan. I want to go back to your earlier point about the Middle East. I mean, we still have a horrible war going on in Yemen that we're supporting. Yeah. And then um, we still have troops in Prop Somalia out. and Iraq and Syria. But, but you know, I think you're alluding to Afghanistan there where we did pull our troops out and they really did end the Afghan war. It's not like that was a ruse or whatever. The Americans yeah. are gone from Afghanistan now. Um, and, but the thing is, you know, that was at the end of August, beginning of September, October, November, December, one quarter of a year later, and you have the Democrats telling the New York Times, if Russia invades Ukraine, we're going to arm up the insurgency. They assumed then that Russia would smash the Ukrainian military and that what would be left would be an insurgency. Um, <laughs> and that, and they said, we'll give them another Afghanistan. We'll do to them just what we did to the Soviets in the 1980s, bogging them down to fight this war they can't win. They, they, these same men, had just finished losing the Afghan war, the 20 year generation long catastrophe of the Afghan war, minimum half a million people killed. Um, that as we all know, is the direct consequence of our Afghan policy from the 1980s and supporting not just the Afghan Mujahideen, but the Arab Afghan army that came from all around the region to help the Afghans fight against the Soviets. This is where bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri and you know their major contemporaries earn their stripes to become terrorist leaders, to become Al-Qaeda, the guys that later killed so many American civilians. And um, it just shows the just absolute level of cynicism. I mean, you can read from the New York Times in December where they say, listen, plan A is we're telling Putin, you better not do this. But plan B is we'll give him another Afghanistan. And to think that these people could even have that word in their mouth at just three months after losing that war and, and then start bragging about, yeah, we're going to do that again to them. And, you know, I've said in my speeches for years that when bin Laden said, that that was all he wanted to do was replicate the 1980s war against us this time by getting us to invade Afghanistan. And that that's what we've just been doing is living out, you know, phase two of our previous intervention there. Mm -hmm. I like to point out, I think it's relevant that a million people were killed in the 1980s Afghan war. And the Americans were not as brutal as that, but boy, you might not know if you were an Afghan, uh, certainly hundreds of thousands of Afghans were killed. But bin Laden was deliberately trying to replicate that. I mean, this was an absolute catastrophe. The Soviet war in Afghanistan in the 80s amounted to them just carpet bombing out of frustration in a way that Bush and Obama were afraid to do. I mean, they called in a hell of a lot of airstrikes. <laughs> but it, when you picture like Nixon's B-52s over North Vietnam, just absolutely unloading inventories of hundreds and hundreds of bombs, carpet bombing down there. That was how the Russians fought in Afghanistan, at least at some points. You know, they killed a million people by, I believe all credible estimates agree. Um, that was what bin Laden was trying to replicate. And I've always pointed out, 
what a son of a bitch this makes him. This idea that, well, you know what? I mean, I mean, frankly, right? Like he's a rich boy from Saudi Arabia. So these Afghans are a bunch of, you know, loser sand and words to him, right? He doesn't care about them, right? They're, they're like a bunch of hillbillies. He's like a white racist against them in the same way that George W. Bush was, you know what I mean? They're like, they're, he just doesn't give a damn about them. If a million of them have to die in order to bankrupt the American empire, well, I guess Allah will just have to sort them out. And the people who are true believers will go to paradise and the people who weren't, well, they just deserve to sink anyway, right? Screw them. And so, but now, isn't that the exact same morality as the current Biden administration? Isn't exa- Isn't that exactly yeah. what they're saying that mm-hmm. they want to do right now? The same thing as what bin Laden said. We'll replicate the war in Afghanistan that killed a million people. If it'll help hurt the Russians, if it'll bleed Russia, you know, don't think for a minute these people give a damn about Ukraine. If they gave a damn about no. Ukraine, they would have negotiated last November, December. You know, they hate Russia. That's what this is about. They hate Vladimir Putin and they hate Russian independence and they're determined to break the Russian state. And just like with Iraq and so many of these things, just like with the war in Syria, I mean, so much of this, you can just read them bragging about it in their own words. That's what we want. Our goal Mm -hmm. is to weaken the point, uh, weaken Russia to the point where its government falls. Even though you know, and I know, and anybody watching this is going, yeah, but don't they have H-bombs? This isn't exactly like picking on Saddam Hussein or Bashar al-Assad, is it? When they got H-bombs, thousands of them, six, seven thousand. And they're the ones that aren't under the thumb of the American empire. That's why we hate them. It's the same thing with North Korea or with Cuba or with Iran. America is the world empire in the place of the hated British. And whoever remains outside of American jurisdiction, the so-called rules-based liberal international order, which is just a lot of words for the American empire and American global hegemony, they're the enemy. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of domestic politics in, you know, uh, considering uh, Floridian electoral college votes and so forth around America's Cuba policy. But it's also the consensus in D.C. that you're not allowed to tell America no. And if you do, we'll put you under an embargo and we'll leave you under it for 100 years if that's what it takes. We don't give a damn. Don't give a damn. You think about, you know, how bad it is living under communism in Cuba anyway. But think about the overall, um, you know, knock against percentage decline in whatever the standard of living of the average Cuban since 1959 because of America's embargo mm-hmm. against them, you know, because they're unfortunate enough to be on an, you know, imprisoned on commie island. Yeah. And, how, dare, how dare they be victims of a communist dictator? Right. Right. And so, so we, make them die younger yeah right we make them live worse lives than they otherwise would the same thing with the the poor iranians and you listen to if you wanted to have a contest of who sounds like a worse sadist w bush barack obama or donald trump when they're bragging about the sanctions regimes that they put on the people of persia you know mike pompeo oh yeah they're starving 
Yeah, they can't even get their medicine now. Mike Pompeo, Trump's man, bragged about a uh, uh, North Korean fisherman's boat washed up on the shore in Japan with dead men in it who had starved mm. to death. And Mike Pompeo goes, yeah, that's how you know our sanctions are working. That's how you know the policy is working when some poor schmuck peasant fisherman dies. That's how we know America's doing a good goddamn job. You said fuck right at the top of the show, so I'm going for it. Oh, go for it. Um, I mean, look, I mean, what can you say, dude? When, 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 when Osama bin Laden justified killing American civilians because that's what it takes to get through to the American government, that's the exact same position as the American government. That's what people in the Bush senior administration said and what people in the Bill Clinton administration said about the sanctions yeah. regime against Iraq. It's their fault that they live under even a dictator that they clearly have no control over whatsoever. But that's just tough. I mean, yeah. they bragged about it to the Washington Post. Yeah, that's right. We bombed the waterworks, the sewage, the electricity, the trucks, the markets, everything. Yeah. What are we trying to do? Make life better for the Iraqis? No. Yeah. They're trying to make it worse, so they overthrow Saddam for us. And this is in, you know, 10 years before the invasion. The Iraqis had no chance. They had their one chance to overthrow him was in the spring of 91 when Bush Sr. encouraged them to rise up and overthrow him ah, and then stab them in the back and let Saddam keep his helicopters and tanks enough to crush the insurrection. And then launch the no-fly zone in the name of protecting the people he just encouraged and backstabbed and betrayed. You know, that was their one chance to overthrow the government. That was over by this time, 1991. They knew that. And, and they also knew Saddam was done crushing the insurrection. It's not like he was going to keep killing all the Shia, all the Shia and Kurds in the country until they were all dead. He was just crushing the insurrection. Once it was over, you know, so this became a bogus excuse for the no-fly zone. But it also meant that they knew that the Iraqi people can't overthrow Saddam. They know that they're just starving these people in order to affect a change that they know is absurd and will never be achieved, achieved, you know? It's the same thing here. It's the same thing. You can find Barack Obama and George W. Bush and Donald Trump all saying the same thing about their sanctions against North Korea, against Iran, against Russia now. Listen to the Democrats talk about the Russians now. We're breaking their economy. We're destroying their economy. Their currency has lost 20% of its value in just the last few weeks. Hardy, har, har, how do you like that? And all these things. Well, that's millions of innocent Russian people who that's their business. That's their retirement. That's their kids' education. That's their food budget. That's their everything is being taken away yeah. from them for something that they have no responsibility for whatsoever. And Biden said, because he's Joe Biden, he doesn't know how to shut the <laughs> F up right at all. So he just goes on. Oh, let me tell you something. Sanctions don't work. Sanctions don't dissuade. Sanctions don't deter. Sanctions are just punishment or whatever. You know, I got the quote here. Let me find it. But he essentially says he knows good and damn well the sanctions won't prevent uh, Putin from doing anything at all. Here it is right here. It came right up. Um, he brags about the sanctions and, and how much they put on how it's going to cause food shortages throughout the world. You keep hearing that? Well, that's true. Mm -hmm. You're damn right it is, he says, uh, because Russia and Ukraine both are the breadbasket of Europe in terms of wheat, for example. Then he says, let's get something straight. 
you remember if you've covered me from the beginning, I did not say that in fact the sanctions would deter him. Sanctions never deter. You keep talking about that, the press corps. Sanctions never deter. The maintenance of sanctions, the maintenance of sanctions, the increasing the pain and the demonstration. I'm sorry, this is Joe Biden talking, bear with me. Yeah. And the demonstration, why I asked for this NATO meeting today is to be sure that after a month, we will sustain what we're doing. And not just next month, the following month, but for the remainder of this entire year, that's what will stop him. Which, so on one hand, he's just saying, you know, if this is ever going to work, it's going to take a year. Which, on one hand, is admitting sanctions don't work. He's just punishing innocent people in, on, on a policy that's in, ineffectual when it comes to actually coercing the, the behavior of the foreign leader that he's trying to coerce, right? Um, but then he's also just giving away the idea that they have no plan whatsoever to negotiate a ceasefire and a peaceful end to this war. They've said yeah. it over and over and over again. They want this war to last. They expect this war to last. And the Secretary of Defense said so. Um, the National Security Advisor has said so. And numerous anonymous officials in the Post and the Times and the Journal over and over again that, yeah, we expect this thing to last at least throughout the year and so forth. So I don't know if that's really true. I know the Americans are pouring in a hell of a lot of arms, um, but I know that ultimately they're overmatched by the Russian military as well. So I don't know how that's going to shake out. But I mean, you just think about it like this, man. If you and I just like got on our skateboards and went and grabbed some random dude and said, okay, man, our little country uh, ally, sort of not really ally, but friend, uh, has been invaded by Russia, which is armed to the teeth with H-bombs. And we have a lot of influence over the government of Ukraine. What do you think we should do? I think, I hope, that that guy would say, negotiate, right? Send our diplomats over there to figure this out. Vladimir Putin is not Saddam Hussein. He's got 6,000 H-bombs. We're going to have to figure out how to stop the fighting sooner, not later. That should be the priority of every human on the planet. What are we doing? How could anybody think that there's anything in the world more important than calling a ceasefire right now in the proxy war between the United States and Russia right on Russia's border? I mean, this is absolute DEFCON 1 territory as far as, you know, the, I think the military is still at three or whatever, but uh, the American people and the, the civilian population of the planet, the 7 billion of us, ought to be doing absolutely everything we can to demand a ceasefire immediately. I don't give a damn on what terms. Figure out the terms later. Ceasefire now. And sit down at that table. Lock them in there like uh, Principal Skinner and Miss Kerbopel until they figure it out. You know? Um, but we just can't have this. We just can't have this. The level of risk... Look, if, if we increased the real risk of nuclear war between America and Russia by 1%, and I think it's a lot more than that, but if the risk has gone up 1% from this war, then that's enough that the whole world ought to call general strike and just nobody do anything until the fighting stops in Ukraine. You know, we absolutely must have a ceasefire right now. Meanwhile, as I'm talking to you today, it's been 66 days 
since Antony Blinken spoke with Sergei Lavrov, which to me is just treason against the American people and against the world. It's just, it's the height of betrayal. There's just, I can't imagine anything worse. It's like burning the Branch Davidians a hundred thousand times over again. What the hell do you mean? Our foreign minister is not talking to their foreign minister. It's, it's insane. They should be impeached and removed and run right out of power right now. Except that everybody waiting in the wings to replace them is even worse than them. But it's just madness that this is going on. It's just madness we're even having this conversation, you know, now in the second half of April. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I mean, just right after leaving Afghanistan. Um, I'm telling you. Yeah, it's spooky timing. Um, to me, one one thing that I kind of wanted to highlight that really freaked me out when it happened was when when Trump first got in. You know, there there was a lot of rumblings within the first like couple of weeks of, oh, is he going to play ball or whatever? But then uh, the media that absolutely hated him praised him the first time they um, went and reported on him dropping bombs. Yep. It was like they the one said, and only time they said good things. I know. I'm telling you, you know, here's the thing, man. Did, did you see this? Uh, somebody had made a super cut of the nightly news being sponsored by Pfizer. Brought to you by Pfizer. Brought to you by Pfizer. And it was like a super cut mm-hmm. of like 75 Examples of ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, everybody just Pfizer's just buying them like crazy, buying advertising on these things. And I just thought, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have thought of this that like you could just have it be Pfizer TV, right? Like drop the pretense, stop calling it NBC, and just say, look, Lester Holt is here tonight because Pfizer is paying him to do the news. Our top story, Pfizer has just invented a new drug. And (laughs) Pfizer's vaccine just passed a new trial. And whatever. It's just so blatant, it's unbelievable, right? It's, It's at the point where you can't pretend to not notice even, like, the most normal average person. It's like, this is a little unseemly here, the conflict of interest. Well, it's just the same thing with Northrop Grumman and with Lockheed and the rest. And and you can see them, especially if, if you look at the Sunday morning news shows, you'll see Northrop Grumman always on guard, defending America, and they show some long-range bomber high, high in the sky, somewhere far, far away, keeping the barbarians at bay for us and all this. But what are they doing? Like, you could argue they're selling stock, maybe, but that's not really what it is, right? What it is is they're just bribing NBC. They're just making sure that NBC knows that they rely on military industrial complex dollars at all times and that they don't want to cross any lines and offend anybody. And it might as well be, you know, not just brought to you by Northrop Grumman, but just Chuck Todd works for Northrop Grumman or whichever idiot they have hosted Meet the Press now. I quit watching them a long time ago, but you know what I mean? Um, It could just be, you know, you could call the news channels or call the major broadcast channels, the Pfizer channel and the Lockheed channel, and then it'd be 1% more obvious that our means of mass communication at the top have simply just been captured by the military industrial complex. 
that's what it is. They just absolutely have this monopoly on the narrative. And, you know, again, like, just like they did with the Branch Davidians, making them into one, a foreign nation, and two, an enemy foreign nation that's got to be attacked and destroyed. Now, they're capable of doing that, of, of twisting people's minds in those ways. Um, you know, I read, I forgot who it was. I just read a quote yesterday about how well-meaning people are so easily duped. You know, I think that's yeah. really a key, right? Is that like, you know, if, if your mom's work. not ruthless and none of the people she interacts with in the world are ruthless people, right? Like even the most catty ladies at church aren't ruthless, right? Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, it's kind of hard to imagine sometimes that like, yeah, no, there are people who will do anything. There are people who would, you know, prolong a war just for one more drug deal or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there are people who are that criminal. Um, and I think, you know, you can have grown adults be pretty damn naive. You know, Willie Nelson has a song. I'm free association boy today. Willie Nelson has a song that he wrote about Iraq War II uh, for Christmas of 2003. Um, and it's called Whatever Happened to Peace on Earth. And one of the things he says in there is he says, they wouldn't lie to me, not on my own damn TV, <laughs> you know? And it, but the thing is like, that's, that really is a powerful sentiment, right? Like it is your TV, right? Like, why would it lie no. to you? You know what I mean? Like, it's, you know what I mean? Like there is not that that's very logical, but it it is just kind of the way our brains work in a way, right? Like it belongs to you. You turn it on. It tells you things. You didn't turn it on to be lied to. You know, so you just expect what you're hearing is right, basically, unless you're thinking really hard about who's behind it and why, you know. Yeah. And then also, they wouldn't lie to me because wouldn't you presume, well, like if it was you, Jacob, like if you had a big position of power in the national government, wouldn't you be afraid that if you told terrible lies that you'd be held accountable somehow? You could get in trouble once you got caught, right? Like that's the, yeah. that's why most of us aren't liars in our real lives is because we would end up with all broken relationships and, and end up alone and hungry. And so yeah. you got, if you're going to do business with people and you're going to get along with people, you got to treat them with the respect enough to not lie to their face, you know? Um, so people just presume that whoever's talking to them is as honest as they are and is as decent as they are. And it's, but it's just uh, the unfortunate truth is that that just ain't true. And, and you look, especially in American media at the top levels of it, the conflicts of interest there with the military industrial complex are legion. And even if you just reduce it down to the same major banks and firms and hedge funds and whatever that are invested in the military industrial complex are also very heavily invested in those media firms. So even if it's not direct from Northrop or Lockheed, it might as well be anyway. And then you can see just the presumption of legitimacy that there's no better expert that you could have on than a general or a CIA officer or a State Department official. You know, and the, the idea is that we wouldn't lie to you, not on your own damn TV. You know what I mean? Like, here are the best experts that we're bringing you. The idea that the best experts would be the naysayers, that the best expert would be some crank over at consortiumnews.com 
who's, you know, can't stand it anymore, would never occur to them even. It's certainly not in their business interest to think. In fact, I think I, I read a thing that said Noam Chomsky got his first MSNBC interview ever a, a few weeks ago or a few months ago. I don't know what the subject was about. I bet it wasn't about foreign policy. I bet it was something he was horrible on and they were exploiting that. But even when Noam Chomsky, like he does every four years, he tells every Demo every leftist to vote Democrat because the Republicans are so much worse. They won't even trot him out for that. <laughs> like as far as, like here's, in a way, and I know he's very old and over the hill now, but yeah. I mean, for, for a very long time, and this is a guy who, regardless of what you agree with him or disagree with him on, was one of the most famous and important and influential intellectuals in the society. I mean, for decades. And yet he was, I think, was never on the PBS NewsHour ever. Right. They really? never did a story about him on 60 Minutes. They never did. They just never let him have a say when it comes to bombing this, that, or the other place. And, you know, he talks about part of why is what he calls the propaganda model, where everyone, the debate is only supposed to take place within these very narrow margins. And then you can have a very vociferous debate. Great example. Should we attack Iraq now or should we give the inspectors more time before we attack? You know, or should we make sure the French are with us when we attack? Now you can have a, 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 a great argument on TV where everybody accepts that um, Saddam is friends with Osama. Everyone accepts that Saddam is currently making weapons of mass destruction, probably including nukes. And everybody agrees that we're going to have to launch a preemptive war sooner or later. The only question is sooner or later. And then they can have a vociferous debate about sooner or later. But they're not going to interview Noam Chomsky to say, actually, America's the greatest terrorist state in the world. Blah, 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 <laughs> and have all this stuff to say, right? We got to go to commercial. We don't have time for all that, you know? No. In fact, I'm the only one you can find, one of the only ones you can find to spit out a bunch of anti-war stuff in the three minutes I've got before we go to commercial when they let me go on Fox Business Channel on the Kennedy Show. They let me go on there. I still got four minutes max to say what I want to say. And and the only time I'm actually able to, to do it is when it's a one-on-one -on -one interview with her where she just lets me go. But if I had to debate with a Republican in a box and we had to like argue back and forth <laughs> about everything, we wouldn't get anything done at all. And when I'm on yeah. the panel with the other guys, I can only make one or two points. And at least the other guys that she brings on are always nice, so we don't fight. It's not exactly like the Hannity days of like total like screaming at each other. But... Yeah. There is not much time to develop any particular point. I mean, you know me, dude. In four minutes, yeah. I've been talking for six minutes just on this last answer. You know what I mean? It's just <laughs> it's impossible to, to get to the bottom of anything in that short of an amount of time. And that's why it's like that. And that's why they have it like that. Well, and it's a lot easier to control everything if you can only have four-minute sound bites at the most. Yep. I mean it's incredible what they've built. Um, it's incredibly disgusting as well. Um, it sure works. It, it, it's just, it's something else. Um, I mean, everyone, it, even in the Liberty movement there, there was a lot of people like, Oh, well, at least Trump didn't get us into a new war. And it's like, yeah, but did you listen to his inauguration speech? He spoke about using military force. So I have no doubt in his second term that he probably would have used more. 
Well, look, no. I mean, he he deserves credit for negotiating the exit from Afghanistan, but I don't I agree with you. I don't think it's clear that he would have actually lived up to it and got out. He escalated the war in Afghanistan for years before he um, scaled it back. Now, most of that was air power. Yeah. It wasn't a huge it, there were some Green Berets and some Marines, but mostly it was air power. So it stayed out of the news. But yeah. but poor Afghans were absolutely blown to bits. I mean, it was a, tens of thousands of people were killed at least. Um, and then he escalated the war in, you know, Iraq War Three against the Islamic State, which was almost over when he took powers. Essentially, for the rest of his first year in office, was Iraq War Three, where he did tell the military gloves off. He told General Mattis, "Go in there and blast the hell out of him." Anything legal, do it. None, any memo Obama ever wrote, you know, scaling you back is trash it. You do whatever you can do without going to prison and blast them bastards all the way to hell. You know, gloves off, a war of annihilation, Mattis mm -hmm. called it. And they escalated Iraq War III. And, and again, hundreds of thousands of people were killed in that. Um, probably mostly during Obama, but still also during Trump. And by the way, the whole thing was Obama's fault. He built the damn caliphate before he launched the war to destroy it. But still. Um, and then he kept the war in uh, Somalia going the whole time. Mm -hmm. A terrible and brutal war uh, for uh, four years straight. And the war in Yemen as well. And the war in Yemen is absolutely the worst war in the world. And, uh, you know, it's what the Obama people call leading from behind, where you pretend it's the, the, you know, in the case of Libya, they pretended it was a NATO war. Oh, yeah, no, it's all the French and the British <laughs> and the Italians doing the bombing. Yeah, right, it is. You know, it's the Americans behind all of that. And it's the same kind of thing in Saudi Arabia uh, in their war with Yemen. We call it the Saudi-led coalition. But America's the superpower. They're our client well, state. The whole they, thing they is They can say off. NATO all they want, but it's yeah. us. It's the United States. <laughs> And he also escalated against Russia. I mean, they framed him. Yeah. Uh, I think probably most people uh, listening to this or, or watching this know that Russiagate was a 100% hoax. Just absolutely yeah. a hoax. Not one single shred of it was true. It's just like the case against Saddam Hussein in 2002. It's like, here's 25 assertions. Yeah, well, every single one of them is false. Now, you're supposed to say, wow, where there's smoke, there must be fire. But that's not smoke. That's hot air. That's BS. That's all it is. There was never anything to it at all. Not yeah. even that the Russians were trying to intervene, much less that Trump was colluding with them and all this crap. The whole thing was a frame up by the Democrats and the FBI counterintelligence division and the CIA and then ultimately the leaders of the Justice Department as well. And, you know, the conspiracy was to pretend to investigate it. That was the plot. That was the end was the means of just pretending to look into the thing forever um, to bog him down. And then, so what was Trump's reaction to that? Did he say, screw this man and invite Putin to DC and take him out to the opera and a big steak dinner and then sign a giant new nuclear treaty and tell the Washington Post, suck it if you don't like it? No, instead he did probably what Barack Obama would have done, which is curl up at their feet and go, no, where? please stop calling me pro-Russian. I'm not pro-Russian. Why? <laughs> I'm as hard on Russia yeah. as anyone. Why, I'm not against NATO. I'm against NATO for not being strong enough, not spending enough money. And where Barack Obama, the first black president to support a Nazi coup d'etat, was afraid to arm 
the Nazi-infested Ukrainian armed forces. I'll show you, Donald Trump said, and went and dumped in billions of dollars of arms to the Ukrainian military, which is what provoked this war. And it's clearly the case that Biden's foreign policy for her, his first year in office is, you know, the, it, you know, that's what provoked the war, but that came, that was not a shift from Trump other than an increase in tempo, right? He sent more arms, he sent more ships to the back black and uh, Baltic seas and more airplanes, you know, to harass their airspace and this kind of thing. Um, But in kind, he was simply continuing the same policy that Trump inherited from Obama and escalated and from Obama and Biden, um, he just returned to Biden and and Biden continued to escalate it. And that's what led to this war, uh, which now threatens all of mankind. So it is the truth that Donald Trump talked a great game and I'll forever be grateful. I have to tell you, you know what? Him divorcing the Republican party rank and file from the W. Bush legacy was heroic. And he had to do it to beat Jeb. He had to say, W. Bush is the worst president ever. His decision to go to the Middle East was the worst decision any American president ever made. What do we get out of it? Nothing. And you know whose fault it was? His brother. Right? So that he had to do it for the Low race. energy. <laughs> That's right. But you know what? Like, it was perfect. Because the truth yeah. is, just like, you know, Trump was good on, on getting out of Afghanistan at least as early as 2013, maybe before that, but we can prove that he was good on it as of 2013. And um, because how could he not be? Yeah. It's not like he was wrong. All actual reality was bolstering his position that this is all crazy and stupid and wrong and we shouldn't be doing it. As I just told you, Barack Obama had us on the terrorist side of the terror war in Syria, for God's sake. And Trump called that right. Said Obama and Hillary, hell, they founded ISIS. Eh, pretty much. Actually, Bush founded them, but Obama and Clinton gave them billions of dollars so and built them a goddamn caliphate. So, yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, so, mm. so how could anyone be wrong about that? By the time Trump said it, it rang so true. You just couldn't deny it anymore. Every Republican who was hanging on to that John McCain, Mitt Romney, I'll double Guantanamo. George Bush is the greatest president ever. Everyone hanging on to that, when Trump told them, forget all that, they were like, oh, thank God. Because how, how absolutely just factually and morally bankrupt. Yeah, was the argument for Bush's terror war now. By the end of Obama, by the end of eight, you know, of, of um, 16 years of terror war, no one believed in it anymore. No one believed in it anymore. We, Iraq War II led straight to Iraq War Three. What in the hell? Right? And people were just over it. So when Trump said that, it was like off to the races now. Now it's okay not just for some conservatives, but for anyone on the right to just damn war and hate it and reject it. And George W. Bush was always a compassionate conservative, rhino, Rockefeller Republican. He ain't Ronald Mm. Reagan's son. He's George Bush's son. He was never a true conservative in the first place. 
Now, anyone who yeah. calls himself a true conservative, if they want, they can throw his sorry ass right overboard. They got a whole <laughs> new flavor now, and that's America first, non-interventionism. We cannot afford to be a world empire forever. It's time to call it off. There's no need to get in a fight as, as Russia regains influence in Eastern Europe and China regains influence in East Asia. So what? America is the middle mm -hmm. part of North America. Uh, the USA is the middle part of North America. We don't belong ruling Eurasia anyway. And, and again, you said it yourself. Yeah. People can't even find Ukraine on a map. You know, if you go back to the end of World War II, when they started the Cold War with the Soviet Union, they all said, Harry Truman and all the Republicans and everybody said, listen, if we were just talking about the czar and the Russian empire dominating Eastern Europe, who gives a damn? Nobody cares about that. Seriously, that's Hungary's problem, Slovakia's problem, okay? <laughs> However, this is red communism, the global conspiracy to enslave all of mankind under a totalitarian Stalinist state. We gotta stop them. It, this is an emergency. This is different. You see how red that flag is? Okay, but that red flag came down 30 years ago last Christmas. 30 years ago. Christmas Day, 1991, the Soviet Union ceased existing and never did for another hour or for another day ever again after that. It's over. And we should have brought our world empire home then. Never mind not expanding NATO. We should have abolished NATO. And as, as Ronald Reagan's uh, UN ambassador, Gene Kirkpatrick, said, now's our chance to be a normal country in a normal time. It's time for us to eschew the burdens of superpower status and instead conserve and husband our resources and accentuate what's right and good and prosperous about American society and lead the world by example and all these things. Sounded like Pat, sounded like Ron. Oh, sorry, Pat Buchanan, Ron Paul. Yeah. It yeah, just doesn't course. have to be this way. It never had to be. The fact that Gene Kirkpatrick said that in 1990 means exactly that if that was our chance to be a normal country in a normal time and if she said so then and she makes a great argument you can read it at my website normal country normal time google it up <laughs> and that just goes to show you that it didn't have to be this way at all right yeah it's like when the bush people go everybody thought that they had weapons of mass destruction no they did no. not either and there are plenty of people who were opposed to that war and plenty of people who knew the truth about what weapons Iraq did and did not have and all of that kind of thing. Well, everybody thought America had to be the world empire after the Soviet Union collapsed. No, that's not true. That's what Bill Kristol and Robert Kagan and Charles Krauthammer and Dick Cheney thought. But that's not what Gene Kirkpatrick thought. That's not what Pat Buchanan thought. That's not what Ron Paul thought. That's not what all kinds of libertarians and paleoconservatives and even just regular Republicans and Democrats. You know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, he was like a card-carrying neocon, ex-leftist turned kind of right-wing hawk, like a Democrat, but like mm. a Truman Democrat, right-wing hawk Democrat. And he said, oh, Soviet Union's gone. Let's abolish the CIA. Now, you're too young. But uh, let me tell you, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was known as the smartest man in the Senate. Wow, he has glasses. He actually reads and knows things and does studies and investigates <laughs> subjects and goes on and on and on like he's Horton. And that was who Moynihan was. And 
you know, extremely well respected. And he said, let's abolish the CIA. We don't need them anymore. Oh. Soviet Union's gone. Why should America have a Gestapo when we're the United States of America? The Gestapo was just for the emergency. The emergency mm -hmm. is over. But you see, that's the answer to the riddle, right? Why is it like this? You know, yep. it's because they need the emergency so they can keep their CIA, so they yeah. can keep their military and keep their Northrop Grumman and keep the whole racket going. That's all it is. Yeah. So instead of going after Trump for working with Putin, they just go after Putin. Yep. And in fact, in, in Putin, <laughs> just the perfect stand in for Trump. This kind of yeah. right wing nationalist Christian, mm -hmm. not well, not that Trump's a Christian, but, you know, not politically correct. Very Trade much. On the side of the anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, you just extend the American wokest culture war 5000 miles east and like, <laughs> look, another dad that liberals can be mad at. Yeah. You know? So I think we're going to wrap up here. Um, yeah. But I do have one more question for you. Sure. Uh, kind of a simple thing. And I kind of want to hear your opinion, your words on it. Um, why is liberty important? Well, I mean, I want some for me and the people that I know and care about. So I extrapolate that out. You know, um, I'm a Han Solo guy. I take orders from just one person, me. Well, and Eric Garris, but that's okay. Um, well, and the old lady, she has to say yeah. <laughs> too. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but other than that though, um, <laughs> and, and look, I mean, nobody likes, uh, being pushed around. Nobody likes being bossed around. And, um, you know, I think you could probably get people all across the political spectrum to agree that we want to live in a world with the least amount of coercion possible, right? Um, different avenues to that. I don't know. And yeah. there are people who will say, I'm sorry, I think you absolutely need coercion for the welfare state or for the warfare state or for the regulatory state or for the whatever it is. And they have their exceptions. But then the rest of the time they would say, but no, of course, other than that, though, we need freedom. So, you know, the libertarian, um, you know, aspect is just going down that laundry list and siding with freedom on each and everything there. And, you know, even where there may be some coercion required, libertarians agree, you know, not necessarily on what those things might be on every given day, um, but that we want to separate society and state so that there's the most accountability, the highest turnover rate for people with power over others in whatever hierarchies there's got to be. You know, there's got to be the maximum amount of accountability and the minimum ability uh, of the people with the power to coerce others to do any but the most basic things uh, like uh, you know, I don't know, uh, be serve punishment for transgressing against others, uh, in a proportionate manner. So whatever imprisonment for murder or, or stealing or, you know, basic, uh, infringements of the rights of other people. But, you know, many of us don't last as libertarians very, very long before we just become anarchists, which is also libertarian. It's not stopping being libertarian, yeah. but it's just because, look, the problem of the commies and the Nazis, right, is it's the combination of police power and the means of production, 
you want to keep those things as separate as you can right yeah and and and, the, and you want to have um well and and when the two things are combined together you end up with this horrible tyranny right but so like the answer is you to put the means of production in as many hands as possible, in as many separate divided hands as possible. I mean, this is a consequentialist argument more than a principled one, but still like to, um, uh, I guess, again, like back to that turnover rate, right? So that it, all the means are, of production and trade are all in the hands of different property owners all over the place that they can only survive by doing the right thing at least for very long by doing the right thing otherwise they're subject to being taken over and replaced in the market by one means or another so and that's basically it and you know what frankly like i think of what a horrifying nightmare it would be if we didn't have separation of church and state in america and you had some states where the official religion was buddhism and in some states it was methodism and in some states it was catholicism and <laughs> You know, maybe they'd still allow you to go to your church too, or your synagogue too, or whatever it is. But that's the official religion of the state of Maryland, or the state of Virginia, or the state of North Dakota, or whatever it is. And just think about, um, even if they allowed um, the free exercise by others, even just having the official establishment of a religion in various of the fifty states. Just think of how insanely divisive and controversial that would be we just don't do that we just you know what like i live in williamson county north of austin which is you know it's a much more metropolitan area than it's ever been but it's still you know major parts of it are still the country and are still you know texans that go back a few generations and things but you can find every kind of church around here catholic and and methodist and baptist and seventh-day adventist and and you know whoever went back to the Adventists here, um, but you can also find Jewish synagogues and um, Muslim uh, temples and and Buddhist temples. What are the Muslim uh, Muslim mosques and Buddhist temples and things? You find find them everywhere, right next door yeah. to each other, and nobody cares. Nobody cares. You guys worship whatever you want. We'll do whatever we want. Occasionally, you hear about a little bit of vandalism or something, but it's absolutely minimal. And, and do we have like pogroms and wars and street fights between people of different sects in Williamson County? Never. I mean, it's just so it's not it, the warriors. <laughs> yeah, it's absurd to even consider. So, you know, my point just being that, look, that's what we get with separation of church and state. We get a decent respect for the opinions of everybody else. You believe what you want. I'll believe what I want. Well, I'm just saying separate society and state the rest of the way. You know, it's if you look at all the worst aspects of our our culture our society and and everything about us it's where especially the federal government is intervening in our relationships uh, with each other that makes everything you know so divisive and so destabilized mm -hmm. look about you know the fight right now about the public schools well it's because they're passing a law saying what the public schools should say but that should be a silly isn't this obvious to everyone in the world you should have to be a libertarian to say well, this should simply be a matter of contract between parents and school administrators. What kind of school mm -hmm. do you want to send your kid to? Why would there be a law that says what you're supposed to teach the kids one way or the other, only because government has created this monopoly on educating kids, this socialist program to educate kids. It makes no sense at all. What the hell is this? Prussia? This is crazy. You know, um, so that's just it. It's just, just like with the churches. 
abolish government schools, and then everybody send their kid to whatever school you want, and then we don't have to fight about it anymore. And then on like that. Yeah. But but that's the bottom line. Is you know, frankly, freedom is it's uh, principled in the sense of ask yourself: Is that what you want for yourself and for your kin? Of course. Um, is, is that what's right to you know? If you have a decent respect for other adult human beings they have the right to do what they want of course you know but also yeah. it worked it's free markets that work that create prosperity for people that create the division of labor that allow people to specialize in the things that they're good at and not have to do all the other work that it takes to get by in the world because somebody else is specializing in that form um it's it's liberty that creates this sort of self-correcting system it's not perfection but you know profit and loss works a hell of a lot better than regular democratic elections when it comes to creating accountability uh, yeah. for bad actors has been my experience. So I guess I'll leave it there. Right on, man. Honestly, this, this was a great honor. Like I said, you've, you've had a really big influence on uh, helping me deprogram from some of this uh, uh, government schooling that I experienced in that uh, don't ask questions patriotism that was just plastered everywhere all the time uh, even well, thanks, now man. I'm proud of that awesome um, want to let everyone know where they can find you real quick yeah Matt uh, scotthorton.org for the show antiwar.com for everybody else's work but I'm the editor there and uh, uh, take credit for it all uh, but uh, it's the most important website in the world. Look at it every day, antiwar.com. Mm -hmm. And then I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, libertarianinstitute.org. Got a bunch of great podcasts and writers there for everybody. And I wrote two books. Uh, well, I, I published three. One of them is this way you see back there, the great Ron Paul, Scott Horton Show interviews from 2004 through 2019. And then I wrote uh, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I'm working on one about the background to the Russia-Ukraine war right now. <laughs> Ooh, and you can, yeah. find the, you can find the speech that I'm building off of. Uh, if you go to antiwar.com slash Scott, you'll see my most recent article there is a gigantically overlong 50,000 word, <laughs> two hour speech on the background to the crisis in Russia and Ukraine. Hey, gotta start somewhere. Two hours ain't that bad, so. Yeah, depends if you have somewhere to go or not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Make sure to go to risetoliberty.com slash link where you can find everywhere we are on the Internet. And until next time, stay free, my friends.